This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. In Dr. Seuss's classic book, Did I Ever Tell You How Lucky You Are?, A bee watcher is hired by the local town to watch the lazy town bee because a bee that is watched will work harder, you see. The town soon realizes that the lazy town bee has not actually started working harder under the watch of the bee watcher. The town concludes that the bee watcher himself isn't doing his job effectively, so the town hires a bee watcher watcher. Unfortunately, when the situation continues to be dire, the town again hires a watcher to watch the bee watcher watcher. I think most of our listeners are familiar with this story or at least know which direction it's going in. In the public markets, auditors play an important role in evaluating and attesting to the fairness of the presentation of issuer financial statements in all material respects. But how is that important role regulated and evaluated? Who is the bee watcher watcher for the audit firms watching the financial reporting of their client issuers? When audit firms fail to appropriately perform their duties, who is watching? The Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB for short, was created with the passage of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 to register audit firms performing audits of public companies and broker-dealers as well as inspect and enforce generally accepted auditing standards, or GAS, for those conducting audits. After the financial reporting scandals surrounding Enron, WorldCom, and other major financial statement frauds of the early 2000s, in which audit firms were alleged to be too friendly with their clients or not having performed their duties up to professional standards, Congress reacted by creating a regulatory agency to oversee the audits of public companies in order to protect investors and the public interest by promoting informative, accurate, and independent audit reports. We're going to take a deep dive into the mission, initiatives, and focus of the PCAOB, their interaction with audit firms, both large and small, and how the audit inspections and enforcement processes impact the accounting profession. That is, who is watching the Auditor Watchers? Today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. I'm Kurt Wolf, and I'm here with my co-host, the one and only Chris Ekimoff. Great to be here, Kurt. (laughs) Good to be with you, buddy. As you mentioned up top, Chris, today we're going to be talking about the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the PCAOB. Our goal today is to explore how the PCAOB interacts with the firms and audit professionals it regulates, and talk about what might be in store for the board. We're fortunate to have with us two exceptional guests, a regulator and a practitioner, who will help us along the way. So before we get going, let's do some short introductions. The first guest I'd like to introduce is Robert Peake. Robert currently serves as a special advisor to PCAOB member J. Robert Brown Jr., Robert joined the PCAOB in September 2019 after serving at the SEC for a number of years, which included stints on the enforcement staff, in the office of the chief accountant, and as a policy counselor to former SEC Commissioner Kara Stein. Robert has also served on the Senate Banking Committee staff and, in a past life, 
worked in the private sector as a public accountant. We couldn't ask for a better guest to join us on this special PCAOB episode of Insecurities, and we're looking forward to your insights. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jovi Deadeye is a trial attorney with Dwayne Morris in New York, representing clients in criminal investigations and litigation. He also defends corporations, senior officers, and individuals in SEC and DOJ investigations and proceedings, and FINRA and PCAOB enforcement actions. Jovi provides clients with advice on remedial measures and compliance programs and conducts internal corporate investigations of FCPA and OFAC issues. Jovi was recently published in Law 360 discussing the potential impact of a White House budget proposal to eliminate the PCAOB and fold its mission into the SEC. Jovi also recently represented an international accounting firm in a PCAOB matter. Jovi, welcome to Insecurities. Thanks for having me, guys. Before we dive into the conversation with Robert and Jovi, Chris, I know you want to provide a little bit of background on the PCAOB, but a minor housekeeping note. You know, I tend to refer to the agency as the PCAOB, but I've noticed over the years that there's no real consensus view on how to refer to the agency or even how to pronounce the acronym. In fact, I've heard that in the early days, folks around DC used to refer to the agency as Peekaboo, which maybe makes some sense. Uh, Chris, do you have a preferred moniker for the board? Are you cool if I just go with PCAOB? Yeah, Kurt, you know, similar to the uh, the internet craze of whether a hot dog is a sandwich, there's a right answer to this. And and unfortunately, whoever coined the pronunciation peekaboo, it's one of the more embarrassing parts of the accounting profession. So we're going to stay with PCAOB. All you listeners out there, please don't at me. It's the appropriate way to, to move forward. So Robert, hopefully you agree with me there. I definitely agree. I, I don't think you will find an accountant that won't refer to it as PCAOB. It's definitely not something the profession drew up. I'm with you. That's great. So getting into some of the details, uh, the PCAOB has a wide mission. Four major focuses. First, it promulgates auditing standards for audit firms and individual auditors in the performance of their duties. It administrates and maintains the registration process for firms that perform audits of issuers or broker-dealers. It performs regular inspections of audits performed by registered audit firms, and it investigates and disciplines registered audit firms and individual auditors when they do not comply with those audit standards, the rules of the PCAOB and SEC, or other applicable professional standards. I know Kurt is dying to quiz me on the shorthand list of the 10 generally accepted auditing standards, but I'm afraid I might get too excited and not be able to give uh, ample time to our guests talking. For those out there interested in, in learning more, the mnemonic is Tippy Canoe, or as I learned back in school, Tid Pi Pico. And neither of those will probably make our acronym bingo episode. But anyways, today we're here to focus principally on inspections and enforcement. And as Kurt talked about, conclude with looking forward at what might be in store for the board in the coming years. We'll start with a short conversation on how regulated firms interact with the PCAOB. Yeah. So Chris, because I'm often focusing on the contentious side of the house, I'm going to take a few minutes just to talk about the PCAOB's inspections and enforcement programs. So first up, inspections. The PCAOB inspects registered public accounting firms to assess their compliance with SOX, PCAOB rules, SEC rules, and professional standards in connection with a firm's performance of audits, the issuance of audit reports, and related matters involving U.S. public companies, other issuers, or brokers and dealers. As J. Robert Brown Jr., the board member Robert advises, recently put it, quote, 
our inspections program looks over the shoulder of the auditors. I guess that's the be watcher watcher, Chris. Board member Brown explained further that the PCAOB, quote, typically inspects over 160 firms that audit issuers and 60 or so firms that audit broker dealers each year. We inspect annually the firms that issue audit reports with respect to more than 100 issuers in the prior year. Many of these firms have a global presence with affiliates all over the world. We inspect those affiliates as well, visiting approximately 30 different countries each year. Smaller firms, those that do not audit more than 100 issuers in any of the three prior years, must be inspected on at least a triennial basis, end quote. As a result of its inspections, the PCAOB releases annually an inspection report that details observations, including deficiencies, from its various inspections. Those are, of course, available online, and I'll just note that the PCAOB is currently taking steps to ensure that those reports are increasingly transparent. So let me stop there on inspections and turn to enforcement. The PCAOB's Enforcement Division has authority to investigate and discipline registered public accounting firms and persons associated with those firms for noncompliance with PCAOB rules, professional standards, and other rules governing the audits of public companies. When violations are found, the PCAOB can impose appropriate sanctions. According to the PCAOB, the enforcement program has three core priorities. One, significant audit violations, including those involving a lack of due professional care and professional skepticism. Two, matters related to the independence and integrity of the audit. And three, matters threatening the integrity of the board's regulatory oversight process such as non-cooperation with PCAOB inspections and enforcement. Like the inspections unit, the enforcement team publishes an annual report. And just to give you some top-line statistics, in 2019, that's the last full year for which we have a report, in 2019, PCAOB enforcement entered into 30 settled disciplinary orders. The PCAOB sanctioned 27 individuals and 19 firms in 2019. And the sanctions included the following – Four firms' registration was revoked. Twelve firms were required to improve their quality control policies and procedures. Twenty-three auditors were barred or suspended, and 14 were required to attend additional CPE. You can learn a lot more about the inspections and enforcement programs online, but all in all, both are very active, very productive bee watchers. All right, we want to get into our conversation, but first, Robert, Did we get the PCAOB's regulatory mission right? Is there anything you would state differently or supplement? No, that's right, Kurt. Uh, Before we continue, I must remind you and the listeners that the views I express today are my alone and do not represent the views of board member J. Robert Brown, other members of the PCOB board, or the PCOB staff. I think it's important to keep in mind that the PCOB was born out of uh, what was viewed as an era of corporate misconduct the Enron and the WorldCom era that had dramatic impact on the investor confidence in the U.S. capital markets. I think it was best said by Chairman Harvey Pitt, then chairman of the SEC, when he said the SEC's belief is that it could not and should not directly address the myriad of issues related to public company accounting, and that compelled the commission to forcefully support the creation of the PCLB and to promote its independent stature. Congress then agreed and nearly unanimously formed the PCOB in order to try to restore investor confidence. As a result, the PCOB's mission 
is narrowly focused on auditors of public companies and broker dealers, but its mandate is broad and that it is to protect investors and further the public interest in the preparation of informative, accurate, and independent audit reports. That means the PCOB has a huge impact on who audits, how they audit, and what they tell investors and others about those audits. That's really helpful context, Robert. Thanks. And, and glad to know we got it uh, mostly right up top as we sort of laid out the, the mission or the mandate of the PCAOB. Chris, I know that you don't, you know, as a part of your practice, audit public companies, uh, but you're familiar with this space. So tell me, how do audit firms interact with the PCAOB on an ongoing basis? The PCAOB is really kind of the fabric or the underpinning of, of any of the registered audit firms. And there's a few ways in which, you know, it's almost, you know, the, the invisible hand over a lot of what the audit firms are, are considering and putting into place. You know, generally accepted auditing standards, as, as I joked at the top, are really the tenants by which auditors, you know, prepare and perform their work, execute those audit plans and evaluate the, the outcomes of that execution. And one of the most important areas starts well before an auditor ever shows up or, or kicks off an audit, and that's an evaluation of independence. Robert spoke, and, and I agree that the, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act was, was targeting that kind of corporate uh, malfeasance between auditors and, and management of the clients they were dealing with. And, and independence became a major issue in, in, in the firm administration from that point onward. You know, the shorthand we use in the industry is that auditors should be independent in both fact and appearance. And everyone has a different definition of that. But, you know, simply put, the audit firms must catalog and understand the relationships between their personnel and any potential audit client from, say, previous working relationships, personal or, or family member relationships that might exist between businesses and in specific areas of the country or, or small towns, uh, as well as, you know, everything from stock ownership. There's very specific limits on the amount of any given client stock or or influence an actual audit firm or auditor can have at the same time. So even before an auditor starts performing the audit of company ABC, they have to have their ducks in a row related to how the firm is positioned to serve that client as an auditor and any potential or perceived conflicts of interest or independence issues that might arise. The second real major area that kicks off with audit firms is a system of quality control. Uh, as we identified, the PCAOB was created out of shortfalls in, in audit standards being performed for major companies that we've all heard about. The quality control system is really a, another part of the fabric of those audit firms. So even without a direct interaction with the PCAOB, audit firms are considering how to create a plan in performing their audits based on industry, based on the complexity of specific audit clients, based on the specific audit areas that they're reviewing at each client to make a defensible and a reasonable case for the, the reasons that they reach the conclusions about the fairness of the presentation of the financial statements. And I think, you know, listeners will know as, as we walk through this conversation today, the more review and thought that's put into the audit before the opinion is issued, the better that is as we walk down that inspections and, and potentially that enforcement line as well. So it, it's really hard to kind of pull apart the specific discrete interactions that the PCAOB will have with a specific audit firm because the auditing standards are so enmeshed in what auditors do every day. Robert, do you see the board's interaction with audit firms uh, from a different perspective? You know, How does the PCAOB work to, to interact and keep its uh, tabs on registrants? It's interesting to see that the PCOB can be viewed as a black box by others, by auditors, um, by investors. And it's, it's, it's a great deal more than a black box because there are 800 talented people that are driven by five full-time board members that really do have a passion for improving the quality and utility of those audits. 
It's the organization's culture that's continually impressive. And the board has worked to instill a culture of learning and translating that learning into action. The board members are constantly learning, and so is the staff. As you will see from the bios on the website, the board members represent a diverse group of individuals, uh, bringing perspectives from professional auditing, public company reporting, academia, and public policy. The board members work diligently among themselves and with the staff to engage with stakeholders. And it's a key part of the strategic plan, and it underlies everything that PCOB does. In fact, they've staffed up with a senior executive in a new role called the Stakeholder Liaison. And I think all of this is aimed at to try to get perspectives from our stakeholders, whether they're auditors, accountants in the, in the profession, and investors, to try to ensure that the PCOB is taking into account all these perspectives. As you can tell from the PCOB's website, there is nearly continually engagement with audit committees. The PCLB has published what it's heard from these engagements with audit committees, which are almost always contacted as part of our inspections program. In fact, recently, the staff published its latest conversations with audit committee chairs, COVID-19 and the audit. So I think we have a sort of broad agreement or consensus about the role of the PCOB and, and how they interact with uh, with registrants. Jovi, we sort of have the regulator's view. We've got the auditor's perspective. Can you give us the attorney's perspective? There are lots of different components to the practice of professional liability and auditor malpractice. And at least I tend to see them falling into three categories. There's the enforcement category, there's litigation, and then there's compliance. Obviously, enforcement first, that's a topic of today's discussion. That really entails from the defense bar side, representing firms before the PCOB who are undergoing routine inspections. It also entails representing firms that are the subject of formal and informal investigations by the PCOB's uh, enforcement arm. And those typically involve requests for information. Defense counsel is you know, routinely asked to advise companies, to defend companies and represent them when they are being investigated by the PCOB for an audit of a particular company that they may have conducted. And a lot of times it's just the PCOB asking for a little bit more information of the underlying work papers involved in the audit. On the enforcement aspect of this practice, it really comes down to whether or not the registrant is a subject of the investigation or whether they're really just a third-party fact witness. The PCOB is more often concerned in those instances with gathering information not necessarily uh, focused on the, the auditing firm, but another aspect of the audit. So that's sort of the enforcement angle of the practice. On the litigation side, it's a bit more trial heavy, doesn't necessarily involve the PCAOB, but for defense counsel, that really comes down to representing firms against claims of negligence, violations of fiduciary duty, uh, misrepresentations, and flawed internal controls. And that's usually brought by uh, private third parties against the accounting firms themselves. But it also can involve defending these firms against the SEC and other state regulators for, for instance, for an alleged involvement in a fraudulent security offering. And then the third component of the practice, I think, is the compliance aspect. And that involves advising and consulting firms on a range of regulatory matters from auditor independence to licensing and professional standards. 
So, you know, enforcement, litigation, and compliance are the three areas I see in this practice. With respect to sort of the way that attorneys get involved in the practices, you know, there are plenty of practitioners who are former accountants in a former life. And it certainly helps having that proficiency and the fluency in the language in the practice. But particularly with the enforcement side of the practice, you know, a lot of people that work in this space aren't necessarily accountants. They don't necessarily have the proficiency, but they sort of have the mindset of defending a client in any sort of investigation, in any sort of enforcement action. So a lot of the skills and a lot of the knowledge that practitioners bring to defending companies who are dealing with SEC subpoenas or thinner enforcement actions, that sort of translates very well into defending firms who are themselves the subject of PCOB investigations. So there's a lot of moving pieces in the practice. It certainly helps to be a former accountant. I, I myself am not an accountant. I don't have an accounting background. I guess you could say it helps to be married to an accountant, but there's definitely ways in which the, the practice evolves based on exactly what it is you're dealing with, whether it's an enforcement matter by the PCOB or third-party claim for negligence. Jovi, I have to agree with you that it's definitely a benefit to be married to an accountant. Uh, my my wife is a CPA, but I'm sure her answer to that question is probably a little different than uh, than how you and I feel. As we move on to talk more in detail about the inspections process, Roberts, I wanted to hear from from your side. I know Kurt talked a little bit about uh, the inspections focus, the 100 issuer auditing uh, dividing line. So, talk to us a little bit about the PCAOB staff's focus when they conduct their inspections. You know, what are those goals, and what are some of the hot topics or, or key areas that the staff might look at? Thanks, Chris. As Kurt said earlier, our inspections program looks over the shoulder of the auditor, and one might characterize. This is the flagship of the PCOB. The vast majority of our budget and our human capital resources are in our inspections division. Our teams look at the audit firm's work and whether it follows PCOB standards and rules. But our inspection teams don't look at everything. They try to focus on the most important things. Inspections typically involve a very time-intensive process that involves review of work papers and other documentation and typically has a lot of interaction with the engagement teams and the relevant audit firm. Every year, as you said before, or as Kurt said before, the PCOB inspects audit firms that issue audit reports for more than 100 public companies. Currently, there are about a dozen of those large U.S. audit firms that we inspect each year. Six of them are extremely large. And many of these firms have a global presence with affiliates all around the world. Smaller firms, those that do not audit more than 100 public companies in, a, in any given year, um, may, must be inspected at least every three years. So we inspect about 180 audit firms that audit public companies and 60 or so that audit broker-dealers. Around 60 of these inspections are all around the world. The board has engaged in a multi-year effort to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of our inspections program. And most recently, as everyone has responded to the emergence of COVID-19, we allowed audit firms to request a pause on the inspections for 45 days. We issued the pause to enable the audit firms to concentrate on issues that arose out of the pandemic. Some took the pause, some didn't, and some did only partially. And that pause ended on May 11th. Right now, our teams are continuing to do their inspections work, but obviously we're doing those remotely. At the end of these inspections, the team prepares a report for each examination. At the end of June, the board issued 
inspection reports for the six largest firms with some new disclosure formats. We hope that the report will be useful to investors and other readers, but we'd like them to tell us how the reports work for them. A couple of things about those reports. First, the reports have been modernized and include some new information. By reading those reports, you can learn a lot about what the inspection team found when reviewing the audits of that particular issuer. The reports are written in plain English, so they are more understandable and they limit terms of art. Secondly, there are a number of new charts and graphs that make the information more digestible and accessible. And the report includes a trend of inspection data for the most recent three years. Third, and in my opinion, most importantly, you've added a new section with even greater information that has been revealed about the inspection findings and the deficiencies uncovered. We are also classifying those deficiencies. We have them in a number of categories where there have been a material error such that a restatement has occurred or where there have been other deficiencies where a restatement has not occurred. The board created the new section to provide readers with more information. And this new section, Part 1B, is not labeled interestingly or may not have a catchy title. It's called Other Instances of Noncompliance with PCOB Standards Rules but it may be very important to a reader in turn and how they assess audit quality. Yeah, don't put it past a bunch of accountants, Robert, to give a, uh, a pretty rote name to something that may be very interesting to, to the users of the report. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting how this is, has progressed. And Chris, if you think back to an earlier episode we had with J.W. Verrett, we talked a little bit about how some folks in the marketplace would really like uh, more transparency or more details about what the PCAOB inspections team finds during its inspection. So, you know, I commend I commend the board for going in that direction and being willing to to provide more information to the auditors and to the market. I think it's really helpful. Uh, in terms of how they determine or find out that information, though, I, you know, I think the point was well taken, Robert, just about how hands-on in, uh, inspections are and how time-intensive they can be. Uh, and in some respects, Joby, that's where you come in, right? So let's talk a little bit about what those inspections look like in practice. I know you recently represented a large accounting firm uh, during a PCAOB inspection, Tell us a little bit about the process. Tell us about the circumstances and if there were any any deficiencies that, that you needed to sort of work out through some kind of resolution with the staff. Absolutely. So we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but year in and year out, one of the higher priority areas for the PCAOB is matters involving risks associated with, with cross-border audits. So the international aspect of the practice. And that's always going to be a priority area for the PCOB. And this matter in particular involved an international audit, that sort of cross-border audit in, in Latin America. And, and I'm happy to talk about this because it ended very well for, for our client and for, and for the PCOB, in my opinion. But it sort of implicated the one of the basic rules that the PCOB has out there, not to get too technical and wonky, but it's 101P2, uh, the, the 20% rule. And that sort of discusses the ability of auditors who play a substantial role in the preparation of furnishing an audit report. And, and the way that that is defined is if, if you're performing a majority of the audit procedures with respect to a subsidiary or a component of any issuer um, of assets or revenues, consolidated assets or revenues of 20% or more. And if that's the case, you're going to trigger the rule. 
And as an unregistered firm, you're going to obviously raise a lot of red flags there. So for us and for this particular matter, there were a lot of moving pieces. We're talking about a uh, Latin American-based company that is a listed issuer here in the United States that had retained an auditing firm to audit its financial statements for a certain number of years. And the accounting firm here in question was using a number of its foreign desks wherever this company had operations. And the question, of course, was whether these foreign desks were actually doing 20% of the work. And you had associated persons of the registered firm doing work in situ at these locations, as many people know in the auditing industry, and they were using third-party contractors. And and so the PCOB was really interested in what level and what amount of work was being done by who. There were certainly, there were questions about the fee arrangement that was in place and really what it came down to and, and why this matter was was ended very successfully was the PCOB just wanted to learn more about what was going on with this particular audit because there were so many moving pieces in so many different areas. And it ended well. We were able to sort of explain, tell a story. It was well documented, so there weren't any issues. But it, it's it's just one of those instances where the PCOB is sort of it's they're not necessarily the bad guy. They're they're just trying to make sure that the story is right, that people are complying with the rules. I know that the 20% rule might sound something that's sort of run-of-the-mill and mundane, but it is a rule that the PCOB is always on the lookout for. And it's more often than not, you see it, especially in the international context, where a registered firm is using either unregistered foreign desks or they're using third-party auditors to participate in the audit. And the PCAB wants to make sure that the audited financial statements are obviously sound and good, but they also want to make sure that unregistered firms that they don't have oversight over are participating in these audits. Thanks, Jovi, for kind of the rundown of a lot of the issues we see is, is audit firms uh, you know, writ large are often uh, many different, you know, jurisdictionally based or or affiliate firms, as I know Robert and you have both talked about. So the PCAOB is keen on those issues as as they look to enforce and, and review the information of registered audit firms. You know, Jovi, it, it, it's good to hear that you had a, g- a good resolution on behalf of the, the client you were working with. Um, unfortunately, as we've talked about, uh, the enforcement division of the PCAOB is really almost a next step uh, in terms of violations or potential conduct. So I know we've talked a little bit about uh, some of the things they focus on, the first being violations of generally accepted auditing standards by the firm and the performance of its audit. Some of those include a, a lack of due professional care and professional skepticism. You know, we talked a little bit about violations of independence or quality control, as well as violations that threaten the integrity of the board's regulatory oversight process, such as non-compliance with the PCAOB's inspections and enforcement groups. You know, there's a few other ways that we can take the enforcement discussion, Kurt, but I know we've got a couple of things teed up here. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking a little bit about the uh, the enforcement results from 2019, which I think is a helpful window into not only how busy the PCOB enforcement program is, but also the types of issues that they that they tend to focus on. You know, of course, enforcement is is sometimes an outcome of the inspections process. And you know, Robert, I'd like to explore that a, a little bit. Can can you talk to us about how the inspections and enforcement units collaborate? How often do enforcement actions arise from inspection referrals? 
As we've talked about, I think the PCOB is extremely focused on the prevention of auto failures and the deterrence of deficiencies. So I think first, um, the PCOB seeks to prevent. But when all those efforts are not successful, the board does exercise its enforcement authority. So Congress intended that the board's inspections and enforcement programs would be separate but complementary, and they would serve the goals of or the mission of the PCOB. The information that the board receives for both inspections and for enforcement can come from a number of areas, and then it depends on the staff and their priorities in terms of how that's how that's used. I think one thing that you you can expect is that the PCOB and the SCC and others go through a time intensive process of rulemaking. But when those rules are finally put into place, I think you will see that there will be vigorous enforcement from the PCOB. With respect to some of the sanctions that can be imposed, the PCOB's enforcement authority is fairly broad as well. It can impose sanctions on the actor or on the firm itself. And then um, the sanctions that can be imposed um, relate to the culpability of the actor, whether or not there was repeated negligent misconduct, whether it was intentional or knowing misconduct, including recklessness. And some of those qualify for some of the highest sanctions. As I said before, the board has considerable discretion in how it executes its enforcement program. And I think if you look over time, you can see um, how the board has tried to use some of those cases for particular messaging cases. I think, for example, prior to 2018, the board brought a number of independence cases concerning broker-dealer auditors who were improperly participating in the preparation of their clients' financial statements. I think that if you look back and you look at the board's inspection program over prior to that time, you will see that there were a number of deficiencies cited in its um, annual report on its interim broker-dealer audit program. If you look back upon the, the board's annual reports concerning its interim broker-dealer program, you'll see that there were a number of instances where the board found deficiencies with respect to the independence of the broker-dealer audit firm. And then I think subsequent to that, then you will have seen the board bring uh, enforcement action in some of those cases. And then you'll see in 2019, the board published orders concerning misconduct in, in different areas, whether or not there are audit violations, some independence violations, a number of quality control deficiencies. You'll see some for improper alteration of documents, for violation of the board's own orders, and untimely reporting on Form AP. Robert, you've touched a few times on the types of sanctions that can come down. I know that I've got the list at the ready in case uh, you know anything were to come down the pike. But talk to us a bit about what what powers the the PCOB has if and when they find a violation or, or want to issue a sanction against the firm or an individual auditor. As I said before, the PCOB has fairly broad authority when it concerns potential auditor misconduct. The PCOB, as you said before, can investigate and discipline first the registered firms and those persons associated with those firms for non-compliance with Sarbanes-Oxley with uh, the rules of the board or the SEC and other laws, professional standards, and other rules governing the audits of public companies and broker-dealers. When violations are found, the PCOB can uh, impose a range of sanctions, monetary penalties, revocation of the firm's registration, um, and a temporary or permanent bar on an individual's association with registered firms. So it would dramatically impact the ability of an individual to work for a registered accounting firm. 
The sanctions that the PCAOB has the authority to meet out are very serious. They can be disruptive to a firm. They can cause reputational harm. For individuals, it could potentially end their career, right? So undoubtedly, the the impact or effect of, of a PCAOB enforcement action can be very real. Uh, but I think you know, one of the perennial questions that that we deal with is uh, whether or the extent to which regulatory enforcement drives the conduct of regulated entities or persons. You know, what is what is the impact of a headline case that involves allegations of auditors behaving badly? So, Chris, on that point, how conscious are audit firms of the PCAOB enforcement risk? You know, if there's if there's a big case. Is there a ripple effect among the uh, audit community? Definitely. Again, not not being a practicing auditor myself, I know through uh, you know friends in in the industry that you know whenever a new topic comes to light related to you know a PCOB enforcement action, immediately the good accountants out there turn around and, and take stock of their own shop. There was a, a major announcement a few years ago about the internal learning programs uh, of a major accounting firm and, and continuing. Uh, professional education is a part of, uh, you know, a requirement as a CPA as well as, uh, you know, a firm that a, uh, an audit firm should should have the right skills, knowledge, technical training to perform the audits that they do. And when you know the PCOB brings an enforcement action around something is is kind of on the side as internal uh, continuing professional education, every firm instantly wants to know how are we doing compared to what the PCOB brought up. So whether it's you know issues of of independence or, or ownership of stock or you know issues in which a, an individual audit partner has a significant loan balance with a financial institution that's under audit. They can be the focus, uh, as well as like I talked about, the continuing professional education or the non-compliance with the PCAOB inspections issues. Every firm is is acutely aware of what's going on in the industry. Robert has talked a bit about the dozen or so firms that are inspected annually. Each of those firms is is keenly aware of how the others are doing in their inspection reports, and then obviously, as enforcement actions are are listed and brought to the public eye, you know they're they're focused on those as well. So we do see that ripple effect, Kurt. But uh, definitely, you know, want to pay attention to what's happening to other firms and make sure that they are not also falling short of what the PCOB believes is is appropriate compliance with those standards. Jovi, you've advised clients in the past regarding avoiding the enforcement process, which is what we've talked about a little bit as kind of the the best road to be on. You know, in your work uh, with accounting firms, what elements do you advise your clients on it in ways to avoid getting to that enforcement level? So that's really the million dollar question. I mean, both from a penalties and, and sanctions point of view and from a legal cost point of view, how do we just avoid the enforcement process altogether? And I know this advice is going to sound boilerplate and mundane, but clients time and time again need to hear it. Robust internal controls are at the top of the list. Um, having robust internal controls is a great way to just avoid the enforcement process altogether. Companies, firms need to have processes by which accounting fraud and malpractice and mistakes are avoided right at the outset. But they also have to have the processes for internal reporting and remediation so that when these mistakes do happen, there's a system in place to deal with them. It's also important outside of that for firms to have really, really good supervisory procedures in place, document retention policies in place that spell out clearly the working papers that need to be retained. And ultimately, it goes back to something that you were saying earlier in the segment, Chris, you know, to use your words, papers signed and opinions written down. 
It's hardly ever going to get you in trouble when you're taking the time to make sure that things are properly documented and memorialized. Cutting corners in this industry is a very dangerous game. It is never going to be a cost-effective strategy in the long run to do whatever is most expedient. And to clients who think that they can get away by cutting corners, brushing things under the rug, and hoping the PCOB doesn't uncover them, it's a fallacy. The PCOB Enforcement Division, they're well-trained. They've got a great set of eyes to capture any fraud. Uh, so again, in, in avoiding the enforcement process altogether, it's about having those internal controls in place to detect the fraud, to prevent it at the outset, and in the unfortunate instances when it does happen, to have a system in place to remediate it. Jovi, I agree. And I think one of the kind of stories I've got from some of the work I've done, we were looking at an uh, audit firm that was alleged to be, you know, the the parlance for for the type of firm is an opinion shop. Uh, basically, you approach them and say, hey, I need I need an unqualified opinion. Here's here's a set fee. Just get the work done and sign the papers for me. Right. So kind of a boiler room type audit firm, which unfortunately can exist out there. One of the issues that the PCAOB brought up was the amount of time that the engagement partner spent on the audit. And obviously, the the audit firm bills the the audit client, uh, you know, based on the hours spent on the engagement and the engagement partner build about a half hour on the entire engagement. Now, the audit work papers for this specific audit numbered, I believe, over about 500 pages. And if you looked at that documentation and the work papers, you saw the audit partner himself initialed every single page of the work papers. And I know, you know, Kurt, you're probably jumping at the bit. How does someone initial 500 pages uh, of information and God forbid, actually review it within a half hour of charge time on the audit. So uh, to, to wit, there are some issues there that can come up with, you know, some of these firms that definitely should not be practicing or definitely had a significant violation there. Uh, that was one of the, you know, unfortunately funny points of that was, you know, having an engagement partner review and sign off on the work literally in a time period that he couldn't accomplish that, uh, even if he just turned the pages himself. Yeah, it's amazing. Jovi, do you have a take on that? Well, you know, it, this is sort of going back to what I was saying before about how enforcement, whether it's FINRA or the SEC or PCOB, there are a lot of common things. Here in the accounting industry itself, what you had just said, Chris, supervisory procedures, whether it's a broker dealer in the FINRA space or whether it's a registered auditing firm before the PCOB, supervisory procedures are an absolute must. Compliance manuals, handbooks, you know, it, it is always prudent to have those in place so that when something goes wrong, you have a process in place to correct it. And it's always important for the PCOB to, for them to see that, you know, like you said, it's not an opinion shop. There are rules and, and internal policies and procedures in place to sort of prevent that from happening. And look, nobody's perfect. There are always going to be instances where that sort of thing crops up. I'm not saying by any means that supervisory procedures are a catch-all and will prevent enforcement. But it's a great way to sort of demonstrate to the PCOB and, frankly, to the to the firm itself that the firm takes compliance with PCOB uh, professional standards very seriously. So, again, can't say enough about supervisory procedures. Yeah, Jovi, I completely agree with you. Regardless of the regulatory framework, you know, an ounce of prevention, you know, through robust internal controls or policies and procedures is always worth a pound of cure, especially when the potential cure is an enforcement action. Now, you know, if you find yourself sort of staring down the enforcement staff, of course, the the best outcome is to avoid an action altogether. But 
for regulated persons, for regulated firms, the truth of the matter is that the PCAOB isn't the only game in town. There's a degree of oversight, or at least overlap, between the PCAOB and the SEC enforcement divisions. And I've had a little bit of experience with this myself, actually. Uh, A few years ago, I was representing an individual who worked at the Indian affiliate of a large international audit and accounting firm. He allegedly violated professional conduct standards, and we were able to negotiate with the PCAOB enforcement staff a resolution that would have resulted in a timeout, and that was agreeable to to all, to our client, to the staff. But when the terms of that resolution got flipped over to the SEC, they took a very different view of the facts, and they set aside the agreement that we had worked you know, for months and months to, to come to terms on and demanded a more stringent sanction. Uh, So, you know, it's interesting to think about, Jovi, even if you do your job really, really well and, you know, get an ideal outcome for your client, that may not always be the end of it. Robert, you've sort of been on both sides. Can you tell us a little bit about how the SEC and the PCAOB work in tandem or, as as I experienced, in conflict uh, with respect to enforcement actions against auditors or audit firms? I think as accountants love to say, it depends. I don't think there's any one-size-fits-all approach. It depends on the facts, circumstances, the professional judgment of the teams. Um, and from what I've seen and in my view, the PCOB and the SEC have a close and collaborative relationship. So it depends on the nature of the potential misconduct and the resources involved. At times, the SEC may pursue the entire case and the PCOB will not. Um, investigate or bring any enforcement action. Sometimes there will be a parallel activities where the PCOB may do some investigation and perhaps some in enforcement of the auditors and while the SEC takes on those related to the issuer. So it really does depend. But one thing that I think is important to note is both the SEC and the PCOB have policies for extraordinary cooperation. And I think, as you had said before, uh, for firms that find themselves that might be subject to an enforcement investigation, either by the PCB or the SEC, I think those are important resources to consider in terms of whether or not you choose to cooperate in the level of cooperation and relative to the sanction. We want to move in and talk a little bit about some of the trends we're seeing in, in enforcement. You know, Jovi, from the defense bar view, uh, are you seeing any topics of interest or, or potential issues you know, that the PCOB may be focused on from an enforcement perspective? Sure. I mean, and I'm not saying this just because Robert's on the line here, but the PCOB is, is great about publishing its disciplinary orders and proceedings and making it very clear to the public, to the investing public, to the audit industry, what it is they're looking at. But Year in and year out, um, there are usually, I'm counting at least four things that the PCAOB is always on the lookout for. Um, investigations that involve a lack of due care and professional skepticism. That That is always going to be a high priority area for the PCAOB. Another one, of course, is independence. Audit matters concerning the independence and integrity of the audit. We know that the rules are exhaustive when it comes to auditor independence and integrity, and you can be sure that the PCOB is always going to look out for that. Another one is instances uh, threatening or that uh, that jeopardize the integrity of the board's regulatory uh, oversight processes. Good examples of that would be work paper alteration and failing to disclose 
certain reportable events. And again, that goes back to what we were discussing earlier about having robust internal controls and supervisory procedures in place. And another uh, high priority area for the PCOB uh, are matters involving the risks associated with cross-border audits. And that was, again, something we were discussing earlier. The PCOB wants to make sure that the work of auditing issuers' financial statements is done by registered firms that are in compliance with the rules set forth by the PCOB. So those are sort of year in, year out, the four priority areas that the PCOB is is concerned about. And again, if you want to see enforcement trends and what the PCOB is, is concerned about, that information at year end is usually available and published as to the number of inspections issued, the number of penalties and, and disciplinary orders that were, were issued. One area going forward that the lately the PCOB has been concerned about and will continue to focus on, and, and I think Robert touched on this a little earlier, is the looking over and policing the auditors of broker-dealers. Number of broker-dealers is, is ever-expanding, and the auditors of those broker-dealers are increasingly becoming the subject of PCOB scrutiny. And I think Robert had mentioned an instance, you know, this is more often seen in, in, in instances where there's an improper participation in the audit of a broker-dealer's financial statement. So if, if there's one thing that I can say that PCOB is going to continue to increase its focus on, it's, it's probably the auditors of broker-dealers. I think Jovi's point is good. There, there is some uh, some helpful publicly available information on the PCAOB's enforcement page. So go there if you want to learn a little bit more. Chris, you want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the future of the PCAOB? Yeah, I wanted to touch on some of the international issues. You know, Jovi brought up in his recent uh, representation of an accounting firm. Uh, you know, there there are robust and, and unique regulators across the globe uh, that focus on audit and accounting issues. And oftentimes the PCAOB will will attain or, or at least agree to memorandums of understanding about sharing information, cooperating in, in the review of audit work papers or other information from a regulatory perspective. And, and we've had a little bit of recent news related to, to some of those arrangements as it relates to China. But Robert, I wonder if you can comment a bit just generally about the PCAOB's position in, in partnering with foreign regulators on you know, those kind of memorandum of understanding issues with, with audits being performed in, in foreign jurisdictions. This has been something that the PCB has taken in, into consideration as a priority since its formation. Uh, the PCB has entered into you know, various formal cooperative agreements with foreign audit regulators. Um, I think part of it is to minimize administrative burdens, but also it's to enhance the effectiveness of our approach, whether it's the PCOB's inspection program or whether it's, you know, perhaps the, the foreign regulators one. So, you know, as you noted, there have been some challenges with respect to that. And, and, you know, in particular, I think, um, as was discussed at the SEC's roundtable in July, as Chairman Dunkey said at the roundtable, the PCOB and its staff have negotiated the ability to inspect auditors and enforce standards in 51 countries. And I think that, you know, in terms of whether or not some of those, those standards can be enforced fully um, is, is really the question. And I think that, you know, you've seen that there have been some legislative proposals. The president issued a memorandum concerning this. And I think um, there's there's just definitely more to come. And I can't comment on the you know the legislative proposals 
or, or the uh, the president's memorandum. But I definitely think that there's there's further work to be done here, and I think that um, you see you know potential action here. All right, let's shift gears a, a little bit here with the time we've got left. Jovi, a couple of months ago, you wrote an article for Law 360 where you talked about a, a White House budget proposal that would effectively uh, eliminate the PCAOB or, or fold it into the SEC. What issues do you see with that proposed restructuring of audit oversight? And have there been any developments since you wrote the article that we should be following? So- it's, it's really an, an issue of resources, ultimately, what it comes down to. As we discussed in this segment, before the PCOB existed, the job of overseeing audit firms belonged to the SEC. But as most folks know with the SEC, its resources and enforcement objectives have generally prioritized exposing other forms of abuse and misconduct in the financial markets, aside from accounting fraud. But I think it goes without saying the enforcement of uniform and sound accounting practices is just as important to the SEC's overall mission of of market integrity and and investor protection. And especially as financial markets are becoming more sophisticated, particularly with the growth of asset-based securities since the 2000s, reliable accounting methods are becoming ever more important to safeguard the investing public. So as I said, Eliminating the PCOB and reassigning that job to the SEC comes down to a matter of resources. You know, asking the SEC to monitor audit firms isn't really so much a question of whether the SEC can do it, but whether it can do it effectively and with an acceptable degree of scrutiny. You know, a number of the PCOB's enforcement staff and attorneys, they're former auditors and forensic accountants who are proficient in the space. They are proficient in auditing practice and procedures. And so they possess a level of expertise that may exceed that of the SEC. And sort of going along with one of the themes of this segment, the, the cross-border and international aspect, the, you know, asking the SEC to take on the PCOB's role is, is more concerning, especially when you consider the amount of work that comes with patrolling non-U.S. firms that audit or play a substantial role in the audit of U.S. issuers and and broker-dealers. The financial markets are way more integrated and way more globally oriented than they were two decades ago. And regulating the markets doesn't stop at the U.S. borders. It's becoming increasingly international, especially in these developing markets where the regulatory infrastructure is weaker and fraud can be more difficult to detect. So the proposal to eliminate the PCOB is sort of unwelcome news, especially at a time when other governments are moving in the opposite direction um, and and they're reinforcing and doubling down on their efforts to regulate the audit industry. And and then in the article, I mentioned that the United Kingdom, for example, they've announced a floor-to-ceiling overhaul of their regulatory regime. So they're planning to take the what is their PCAOB equivalent, the Financial Reporting Council, or FRC, And they're transforming it into a new and larger regulatory body that's going to be known as the Audit Reporting and Governance Authority. And this makeover comes with a commitment by the UK regulators to increase audit examinations something by like 27% in the next fiscal year, increasing the monitoring 
of firms beyond the big four to smaller and medium-sized audit firms. And it also comes with a commitment to hire additional lawyers and forensic accountants and increase that agency's headcount by over 100 uh, in the next year. So the proposal to phase out the PCOB is odd timing, especially as a growing global economy demands more coordination and cooperation among government regulators. And and you're seeing that with the, as you just spoke about the, the memorandums of understanding with China. So again, the PCOB has demonstrated that it's a specialized regulator that plays an important role. And, you know, it's important to view the PCOB not as an obstacle or just bureaucratic red tape, but really as, as a support system for the SEC in helping them realize their mission of market integrity and investor confidence. Yeah, Jovi, I'd agree with with the sentiments, both both foreign and domestic, as, as you talk about it. Robert, you know, where do you see the PCOB going in the next few years? You know, I can't comment on the president's proposal, uh, but what I can do is go back in time and talk about why what was happening at the formation of Sarbanes-Oxley. And, you know, seven former SEC chairmen, the Congress and the president at that time believed that the defects that existed pre-Sarbanes-Oxley would be best uh, remedied by a creation of a board functioning under the legal control and authority of the SEC. And then um, at the time, I said I mentioned uh, what Harvey Pitt said at the time had said before about the P- about the formation of the PCOB. But I also wanted to say one of the things he also said at the time was that the critical regulatory functions, including quality control and discipline, should be moved from the profession to an independent regulatory body that is completely or substantially free from influence or funding by the profession and is subject to comprehensive and vigorous SEC oversight. And I think that sometimes uh, might be what's lost is that the PCOB is subject to vigorous SEC oversight. They approve the budget. They approve the members of the PCOB. And I think one thing that Arthur Levitt said, you know, the independence of the PCOB is very important and it would be a mistake to fold it into the SEC. So I can't specifically address those, but I think I can, there's a lot of comment out out there. And I think that you know, Congress and the president at the time intentionally chose this structure, and um, the piece, the, the commission itself was very much in favor of this structure. Yeah, Robert, the historical context is helpful in terms of just making clear the function and the importance of the PCAOB, you know, as a regulator and how it interacts with or is overseen by the SEC. I think that's an important check. To remember, so it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. You know, this isn't the first time that we've heard a proposal uh, for for an agency to get folded into the SEC. We haven't seen that happen in every any other instance yet. So, you know, I wouldn't hold my breath. But Chris, let's play make believe for a second here before my favorite game before we sign off. So, in a world where the PCAOB is folded into the SEC. What do you think happens? Does audit quality increase, decrease, stay the same? What do you think about the proposal? 
I'm going to go with our favorite answer here on the insecurities podcast. Uh, it depends. <laughs> no, I think that both, both Jovi and Robert, the sentiment that they they previously shared is right on the money. And and I don't care if you call it PCAOB or Peekaboo or the SEC Division of Audit Oversight. Uh, if you have people with the right technical background, the experience, and, and the mission to to, to promote the public interest and, and to provide oversight to the accounting and audit function. It might take a lot of different shapes, but I think as long as that's the focus and you have the right people in place to perform and, and execute on that focus, you know, audit quality can still be be high in those environments. You know, the, I think the administrative way that the PCAOB reports now to the SEC that we just discussed is is great uh, in terms of an oversight from from the actual board's perspective. And I think that from a quality perspective, you know, the PCAOB does require a, a significant amount of experience in the audit world, but there are members uh, of the board themselves who who did not serve in significant positions at accounting firms. You know, the revolving door theory that often gets tossed around in Washington, D.C., you know, the PCAOB is almost, uh, you know, a little bit removed from that with with some substantial board members not having served as auditors. So, so there is the ability to provide some context and some technical experience uh, to those members while they also provide a perspective from outside the profession itself. So, I mean, again, in, in a world of make-believe, I could see it falling in any of those three categories of more quality, uh, less quality, or being the same. But with the right folks in place, uh, I think the audit, audit world is being uh, overseen to a reasonable degree and, and should continue to be treated that way. Yeah, well, as I said, it's going to be interesting to to see how this plays out. Robert, Jovi, maybe we're going to have to have you back in in six months or a year uh, to see how to see how things are taking shape. But I think it's been a great conversation today, and thank you both for taking time to come on Insecurities with Chris and me. Thank you. And Jovi already gave me the lead on some potential positions overseas, so I might take it. I'm off on <laughs> bringing people together, Chris. That's what we do. That's great. Joining you guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guests, Jovi Deadeye and Robert Peake. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. 
Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.